Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. The FT Money Show is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace provides everything you need to create an exceptional website for your business or hobby for around £5 per month. Start your free trial today and enter the code MONEY to save 10%. Whatever your idea is, build it beautiful on Squarespace. The Champagnes on Ice as the London Stock Exchange celebrates 20 years of AIM, the alternative investment market. But why are investors the least likely to be raising a toast? Plus, we ask what more could be done to help private investors who are tempted by AIM's tax breaks to better understand the risks in the market and assess the £1 billion spending spree that UK pensioners, flush with newly freed pensions cash, could now be embarking on. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Kate Burgess and Josephine Cumbo, plus our special studio guest, Professor Paul Marsh of the London Business School, our resident AIM expert. AIM, London's junior market, was officially launched two decades ago this week as an alternative to the main market for small and fast-growing companies. Over the years, companies listed on AIM have raised a staggering £92 billion, and the index has provided an irresistible lure for private investors who dream of investing in the early stages of a company like online fashion retailer ASOS. However, research to be published in FT Money this weekend shows how steeply the odds are stacked against you when it comes to picking a winner. I'm joined in the FT studio today by Professor Paul Marsh of the London Business School, part of the team that designed the FTSE 100 Index, who, alongside his colleague Professor Eroy Dimson, is a shrewd observer of the small cap universe. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Your data shows that as an index, AIM has been a shockingly bad investment overall. Over the past 20 years, it's produced a negative annualised total return for investors. Now, you've previously said that the biggest puzzle is why AIM's underperformance persists and why investors don't learn. Have you come any closer to explaining this conundrum? There are lots of reasons why AIM has underperformed. I'll just pick three of them. The first is it's an IPO market. Most of the companies listing on AIM have uh, listed via an IPO or by going public. That means it's a young market, and so it's predominantly made up of companies that are young and unseasoned. And there's lots of evidence from around the world that IPOs tend to underperform after they've gone public. And uh, this is something that AIM has suffered from. Uh, The second reason it's been a fad market, it's part of being an IPO market, and so all the latest fashions, the dot-com boom, right the way through to the more recent resource boom. And investors generally don't get rich when they're investing in the next big thing. And then finally, AIM's a growth market, 
uh, it's full of growth stocks. And there's, again, lots of international evidence from other markets that growth stocks underperform, uh, probably because investors get too excited about growth and overpay for it. But the puzzle, as you say, is why investors don't get wise to this and mark down the prices of AIM stocks to the point where they do offer a decent return. Um, Perhaps some of the underperformance we've seen is actually that process of repricing the market. But I'm not convinced about this uh, because AIM stocks as a group don't look cheap to me. Well, that's a very interesting point that you that you raised there about whether they're cheap or not. But the other popular myth um, about AIM is that if you look at the index as a whole, it performs badly. But if you pick those, um, you know, amazing stocks that, that outperform, then you're in the money. I mean, what would you say to this assertion that AIM is a stock picker's market? Well, I think the myth is that stock picking is easy. Uh, What people mean by AIM being a stock picker's market is that there's a big dispersion of returns. There's uh, a lot of companies that have been poor performers, and there's a handful of really big winners. And people sometimes say, obviously, no one would um, hold the AIM market as a whole, uh, implying that all you've got to do is pick the good ones and, and leave the others alone. But actually, in aggregate, investors as a group do own the AIM market. That's what they own. And they've had very poor returns from it. And picking the big winners is is tricky. It's a very competitive market. Everyone's trying to find the next ASOS. And the people who are best equipped to do this with extensive resources and experience are uh, the professional fund managers. For many private investors who try to do it themselves, they're at a big disadvantage. So I think AIM can be quite dangerous territory for them. Now, a short teaser for our listeners. In this weekend's FT Money, available online and also within your copy of the FT Weekend, Paul and Elroy have helpfully identified the top 10 and bottom 10 performing shares in the history of the AIM index over the past 20 years. I don't think I'll be spoiling anyone's birthday surprise by saying that ASOS came top of the charts. Had you invested £1,000 when it first listed on AIM in 2001, you would now be sitting on a rather stylish £162,000. So look out for the full feature this weekend. Sticking with the AIM theme, I'd now like to bring in Kate Burgess, the FT's small talk columnist and small companies correspondent. Kate, you're writing the Serious Money column this weekend in which you argue AIM stocks should be graded to help private investors better understand the risks. Can you explain your thesis? <laughs> well, it's a thought rather than, a, um, than anything else. It was conceived as a loosely regulated market where you balance the cost of, of listing for companies against investor protection the thing was, when it was conceived, I think 95% of AIM companies, and bear in mind there were about 10 when it started and you know, two or 300 within three years, yeah. um, it's now 1,000 companies. But when it started, 95% of the shares were in the hands of the entrepreneurs, founders or venture capitalists. People, People who were well suited to those kinds of risks. Exactly. And now we're talking about after successive tax breaks, a very substantial amount of shares that are now in the hands of outside investors. And more recently, the ISA tax breaks um, brokers are telling us have encouraged a fresh wave of private investors to look at AIM afresh. Absolutely. According to the LSE, about £4 billion worth of shares were transferred into ISAs two years ago when the break was first introduced. That's a very different investor profile. And I think that um, the regulators need to um, look at that and an aim needs to grow up. 
you know, it's 20 years old, it's time it moved from being a teenager into... You know, a into young the, adult! Yes, exactly. <laughs> what are the kind of things that you think AIM should signpost um, to the perhaps more unwary investor? It's going to be difficult because what no regulator wants to do is to give advice, but it seems to me that increased disclosure or signposting might help. They could badge stocks that have free floats below a certain level where they become too illiquid for outside investors Mm. um, to have any kind of sway. They could uh, badge the international companies from places where the governance standards aren't the same as you would expect from a UK company. They could badge the companies that comply absolutely with the UK corporate governance codes. It's just a, a way of signposting where the risks are. It's not telling investors that they shouldn't take risks, um, but just making them aware where the risks are. Well, I look forward to reading in full your argument for for greater disclosure in FT money this weekend. Now, I'd like to ask both of you if you think that the better regulation on the AIM market would improve performance or if there is any sign, Paul, that the regulatory tightening we've seen in recent years has had any positive impact. I don't think the uh, tweaks that have been made so far have had very much impact. Um, I'm not sure the problem is the rules as such. It's probably more the way the rules are implemented. And at the heart of the AIM regulation is the nominated advisor regime. The nomad. The nomads, absolutely. Um, Every AIM-listed company has to have its nomad, and the nomad brings the company to market in the first place and then acts as its minder and advisor and regulator and guider. And... um, The problem with this is there are about 40 different nomads listed under the uh, London Stock Exchange rules. And um, some of those nomads are excellent, but others are really rather poor. And the poor ones tend to bring companies to market that probably should never have come to market in the first place. Mm. And there's another problem. If the nomad finally decides that the company that they're looking after um, is no longer worthy of their services, they just resign. Then the company's got one month to find another nomad, but it's got the stigma of having its existing nomad having just resigned. So that's difficult. After a month, the company gets delisted. And that seems to me to be a rather poor way of um, protecting investors because it just leaves the investors high and dry. Well, as well as liking to think that they can spot the next ASOS, lots of private investors are also attracted to the tax benefits of AIM, as we've been saying, particularly business property relief, which means stakes in certain companies can be passed on free of inheritance tax. Um, This, coupled with the tax advantage from holding AIM shares in an ISA, do we think this is distorting the market? Let me make a distinction between the ISA and the inheritance tax breaks. The allowing AIM stocks to be held in an ISA I don't think is distortionary because you can hold any stock in an ISA. So there's actually a level playing field. It was distortionary in a sense that you couldn't hold AIM stocks in ISAs before. So I don't I don't mind the ISA. The inheritance tax break is, is a bit different. Okay. And um, the inheritance tax break and any break like that, the problem with that is that for some investors, it causes them to be prepared to pay more for the stock because it's worth more to them because of the tax breaks. And that is distortionary. And um, so that is is rather um, uh, distortionary. But also the other distortionary effect is that investors and the entrepreneurs tend to be rather locked into the share because of the inheritance tax break. So that also removes some liquidity. So I think both of these are distortionary. And um, 
there is also a danger that um, investors who uh, invest in AIM but don't benefit from the inheritance tax breaks or don't intend to or don't or can't um, actually end up paying too much for the companies in the first place. So that, that's another potential distortion. Which leads me to ask, by encouraging private investors with these tax breaks, are we in danger of throwing those less savvy investors onto the fire? Kate? I think there is a danger that it will attract investors who don't read annual reports uh, from cover to cover and don't manage to get to talk to companies and know what's really going on, um, that they're lured in by the ASOSes um, of this world. You know, even ASOS will have lost people money if they bought in at the wrong time. It's this a- is true. It's had a rather <laughs> rocky few years. And recently. that's the nature of AIM. It's a, you know, it's a technicolour market. Paul, you said earlier on that you thought that the fund managers, uh, the professional fund managers, were the best place people to, um, to, to do the stock picking. Certainly we've heard from two star fund managers in FT Money this weekend about what their techniques are when it comes to assessing AIM companies. Is this probably a better route in do you think for for private investors tempted by aim i think it is a better route in um, but the performance of aim has been so poor that even the professional fund managers have struggled as a group uh, so we should not um, overestimate the 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 uh, the riches of aim from these uh, stock pickers that they are actually fighting against very big odds uh, for example, uh, you would have lost money over the last 20 years from investing in AIM. £100 would have become £83, even with dividends reinvested. Uh, but if you put it into non-AIM, smaller UK companies, uh, you would have quintupled your money. You would have made five times as much. Uh, so that's a huge gap that you have to make up from stock picking. And even the very best professional fund managers find that a stretch. Well, happy birthday, AIM. Sorry to be a party pooper, but as Paul and Kate have shown us, there's lots to consider for investors thinking of having a punt. Thanks very much, Paul and Kate. For the full rundown of AIM's top 10 winners and losers, log into ft.com slash money this weekend or pick up a copy of the Weekend FT. This week, pensions freedoms once again hit the headlines as Chancellor George Osborne triumphantly revealed that over £1 billion of pension pots have been cashed in since April's rule changes. Ka-ching for the Treasury, which tellingly did not provide an update of how much extra tax revenue might be collected as a result. I'm joined by Josephine Cumbo, the FT's pensions correspondent. So, Josephine, you've reported this week that 60,000 pension savers over the age of 55 have now cashed out £1 billion from their pension fund since April's rule change. Was this the level of withdrawal that industry and government were expecting? Well, before the pension freedoms came into force in April, there was a lot of speculation as to how people might respond. We knew that up to about 320,000 people a year could cash in, and there was a lot of pent-up demand from 2014 when the government first announced the policy. So all in all, it could have been more extreme than it was. Uh, As it is, 60,000 took uh, advantage of the new freedoms from April, so not as big as it could have been. And we should say that doing the maths, it works out to about £20,000. That's that's um, an average, yes. So in some people's estimates, not not as high as it could have been. But do you think that there's pent-up demand 
from savers whose providers are making it trickier for them to access their yes, cash. Yes, I think in recent weeks, reports have certainly emerged of savers being frustrated trying to cash in their pensions due to a variety of reasons, uh, ranging from their providers not offering the most easiest or cost-effective ways to get their cash out, to the provider insisting they get professional advice, which can cost hundreds if not thousands of pounds before they'll process their request. It's important uh, to note here that um, uh, some of the frustrations that people have been experiencing uh, are due to the expectation, uh, part fueled by the government, that they could take their money out like a bank account from day one. Mm. And this type of flexibility hasn't uh, emerged among all providers. And just to give you a sense of frustration that has been building this week, I heard of one case uh, where a customer threatened uh, a pension provider's call centre staff to have a confrontation in the car park if they didn't release his cash immediately. So the situation is quite heated. But um, it's important to to note that um, the advice safeguard is not one that providers are insisting it is a legal requirement in certain circumstances if your pot is uh, £30,000 or more and has a safeguarded benefit such as a guaranteed annuity rate Mm. or it's a final salary pension a transfer value of £30,000 or more it's a government requirement that you get professional advice on that transfer just to make sure that you fully understand what you're doing Uh, but there is more concern and confusion about how this advice safeguard should be applied by providers certainly evidence that they might be going a little bit further than they should do in insisting on customers with smaller pots who are outside that safeguard uh, on getting advice and that is creating lots of frustration and headlines uh, for newspapers. That's true, but in my view, too much advice is hardly um, a bad thing. Now, it's in the early stages, but what could the medium-term effects of this policy be? I mean, for one, what are savers going to do with that billion pounds worth of newly freed pensions Well, in in the short term, there certainly has been a dash for cash and um, it will provide a boost for the economy because the reports are that the money is going into um, holidays, home improvements, B&Q perhaps, and all the other providers uh, uh, will get a boost from all that cash in the short term and people paying down debt. Uh, mortgages as well and other personal which would loans, be a fairly which would be use. quite a sensible idea to use a small pot to pay it down but there could also be effect on on the property market to some extent as people are using cash to help their children get onto the property ladder they're helping them out mm. For the Treasury, it's good news, as you uh, mentioned earlier on, uh, because they get a boost in tax take. And and that works because when someone cashes in their pension, what happens is after the first 25% typical, uh, which is tax-free, they'll pay tax on whatever they take down and they're taking it in a lump sum. They might be pushed into a higher tax bracket. So all that tax is coming in earlier for the government than it would have done if that individual had taken an annuity and was paying tax on smaller doses right throughout 20 or 30 years. So the interesting uh, question now is whether George, the Chancellor, is just happy with how much cash uh, is coming in. If the system uh, is being blocked and people aren't being able to access 
access their cash uh, quite in the way that the government had envisaged, you know, perhaps we might see some action to ease the logjam. Well, hopefully it won't come down to fisticuffs in the Downing Street car park. Well, thank you very much. That was Josephine Cumbo, pensions correspondent for the FT. We'd love to hear about your experiences of investing on AIM. Hopefully you've managed to beat the index's lacklustre average returns with your portfolio or pensions freedoms or about money matters more generally. You can get in touch via email. The address is money at ft.com or you can tweet us at ftmoney and you can leave your comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com slash money. There's just time to tell you what else is in this weekend's edition. In a dream assignment, money reporter Judith Evans examines frothy beer valuations in the world of crowdfunding. We've shared tips from our sister publication, The Investor's Chronicle, and the latest director's deals. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Kate, Josephine, and our special studio guest, Professor Paul Marsh. Thanks to Squarespace for support of this podcast. Some of the top creative professionals in the world use Squarespace's simple yet powerful platform to build their brands online. Start your free trial today and enter the code MONEY to save 10%. Whatever your idea is, build it beautiful on Squarespace. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.